0: People of God, let us now open our copies of God's Word to Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. One of these days, I hope to preach this text the way it should be preached, which would take three or four sermons. Um, Nonetheless, every time I study this passage, I, I learn something new. It's deep and rich and wondrous. Nonetheless, we are hitting the high points today of truths that we need to remember at all times, but perhaps especially at this time of the year. Matthew 1, beginning with verse 1 through verse 17, let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, how wondrous and rich it is to turn to this portion of the Word of God And to see once again that thou art a God who rules and reigns, who has a purpose and a plan, and that that purpose and plan is executed in history, and that we are the ones who benefit by the grace of God for this great and wondrous thing done when Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, God in the flesh who dwelt among us. And we ask, Father, that our hearts would be moved, our minds informed, our souls delivered from sin, that there would be great grace among us today, that lost people would come to know Jesus Christ, and that the people of God would once again be built up in the most holy faith. And prepare us to come to the table of the Lord, that we may, as have generation after generation, come to the table of the Lord. Commune with Thee, O Triune God, and to receive strength, and persevering grace. Hear our prayer, receive our praise for the incarnation of our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin with verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel. This is the Word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shaltiel, and Shaltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Avihud, and Avihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihu the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I realize that genealogies are not usually the first place that you turn for edification when you read the Bible. I doubt seriously that last evening some of you thought to yourselves, I need a little edification before going to sleep tonight, and so I'm going to read one of the genealogies in, say, Chronicles. Nonetheless, those genealogies are very edifying the more we come to understand them, and this genealogy is particularly filled with edification. Matthew stresses Jesus the King and begins with the King's genealogy, and moreover, there's a wondrous stress upon the grace of God in this genealogy as we shall see. I mentioned before that it would take several sermons actually to unpack all of the wondrous detail that is here, but we're looking at the broad sweep this morning. There are some things we need to keep in mind, however, when we turn to this genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. One of those things is the reliance of the genealogy upon the Old Testament Scriptures, showing both the authority and the unity of the Bible, that God's Word is one, even as God himself, the author, is one. Also, we see in this genealogy that God has a purpose. God has a plan to save his people. God has eternally planned to befriend his people in Christ, and that plan is is irrevocable. But also, God's plan to save his elect is worked out in history, in time and in space, by God's sovereign hand. As history unfolded, God was preparing the birth of Christ, and he still has a plan to save his people by Christ, and your part in that plan as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is just the stitch that God intends to be in the rich tapestry of his redemption of his people. Now, these presuppositions are behind the genealogy of Matthew 1, and it's good for us to have them in mind as we proceed. Now really we have two genealogical lists or maybe we should say an introduction to the genealogy in verse 1 and then the more detailed genealogy that follows beginning with verse 2 to the end of the chapter or the end of the section in verse 17. So as we come to this text, the first thing that I want us to see is the king of grace described. The king of grace described. And there are a number of descriptions of the King of Grace, Jesus Christ, in this passage. The first one, you have to read between the lines, I think, to see, but I think I'm correct about it. We see him here as the new Adam. Now, you might say, where do you find that? Well, of course, it's explicit in Luke's genealogy of Christ, but where do we find it here? Well, I'm referring to the Jewish mind here that would think back, when reading Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy, what would come to the Jewish mind is the fact that the book of Genesis is organized in a genealogical structure, so that in chapter 2, verse 4, it sounds very much like what you read here. And in chapter 5, verse 1, you have the first detailed genealogy, which is the genealogy of Adam. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that the Jewish mind, and this is very much addressed to those who would have been familiar with the Old Testament Scripture, are following along and thinking, and the first genealogy would come to mind, Genesis 5 and then Genesis 10, Genesis 11, and the genealogical uh, structure of Genesis. And in that, this genealogy points to Genesis 5, which is the genealogy of the descendants of Adam, in which we read, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, because of what we read together in Genesis 3 just a few moments ago. And so why is it significant that this would come to the mind of the Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel, to whom it is first and foremost addressed? It is because the birth of this Savior coming into the world represents a totally new beginning. It is because fallen humanity now has hope because of the coming of this one that is promised in this genealogy. It is because of what we read in Romans five seventeen: "...for if by the offense death reigned by one," that is, the first Adam, Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam. And so I say to you who are here today, do you realize and recognize that your heart is in need of the forgiveness of sins? Do you need a new beginning? That's what is being portrayed, I am convinced, by the way in which we begin here in Matthew's Gospel. That Jesus is the new Adam, that he is the new head of the new humanity that trusts alone in him for redemption. But he is also described as the Messiah. So we read in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now of Jesus, the name, we will say something in a subsequent sermon, Lord willing. We have in 121, thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins but as you know, the term Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament term for the Messiah. He is saying here that he is Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one. He is the announced Redeemer, announced by the Old Testament prophets, who would come with the anointing of the Father to redeem and save his people from their sins. He also is described here as the King We see it in this very first verse when we read that he is the son of David. Very important for us to know, by the way, as we look through this genealogy together, let me just say that we think in terms of a first person descended from another, descended from another, one generation after another, but in Hebrew, the Hebrew way of thinking, there can be great gaps between the ways in which genealogies are written or recorded. For example, in verse 8, there's a compression of the kings, and some are skipped over intentionally. And so begat can span a number of generations. So we have here the son of David, and this is a recurrent name of Jesus all through the book of Matthew. And its Old Testament language, in 2 Samuel 7, we are told of the line of the kings that will descend from David and other prophecies of the Christ, that he will descend from David's line. When we come to the New Testament, this is underscored in many places. In 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the offspring of David. Or in Luke one thirty-two, when the angel Gabriel comes and announces the birth of Jesus Christ, he is the birth of the King, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Or in Isaiah 9, that very familiar passage, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. But also in this very first verse, there is an emphasis upon the fact that Jesus Christ is the ultimate heir of the covenant promises. He is not only the son of David, but going even further back, he is the son of Abraham. The covenant made with Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And so in Genesis 22, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the promise given to Abraham. And we read in Galatians 3.16, that seed is Christ. And then when we turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, the Great Commission, all the nations are blessed in him, fulfilling Genesis 22, that all the nations shall be blessed through Abraham's seed, who ultimately is the Christ proclaimed in the preaching of the Gospel. And so the signature of the covenant of grace that was made with Abraham that continues to exist, the signature of the covenant of grace is that of Jesus Christ written in his own blood, which we remember at this table this morning. The nations will be blessed. Gentiles will be saved. His purpose will stand. He will do all his pleasure. No one and nothing can stop the plan of God promised to Abraham. His mission will succeed. And even though through the centuries there might have been those true believers who would have thought the promise seems to be delayed and put off, yet this did not weaken the fulfillment of the promise in just the way and in just the time that God himself had intended. And so to sum up this first point, Jesus is the promise of a new beginning. He is the Messiah who was to come. He is the king. He is the heir of all of the covenant promises. And over time, God brought him and his timing was perfect. And we read in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. So that's the summary of the very first verse and the very first point. But then we come to the second thing we see in this text, was, which was grace in Israel's history. Grace in Israel's history. And this is summed up for us in verse 17, where we read, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, the Christ, 14 generations generations. So, if we had the time to unpack all of this as we find it in this passage, we would be moving from Abraham to David, which would encompass the covenant with Abraham, the enslavement, the exodus, the giving of the law, Joshua, Judges, and Saul. And then we would move from David to the Babylonian captivity, which would include the monarchy. And let me say, there's something really wonderful that I cannot say this morning about the kings that perhaps I will be able to say soon in a subsequent sermon. But we would have to deal with the monarchy in detail this morning and cannot. But the monarchy, the divided kingdom, the destruction of Jerusalem, is God there in dark times, even when there is captivity in Babylon? Yes, he is still working his purpose out. Is he there in dark times for you? Yes, he is still there, people of God, working out his sovereign purpose. And then from the Babylonian captivity until the coming of Christ, so that in verses 12 through 15, it includes all those years of silence, those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, about which external history is not available to us to understanding even who some of these people are or were. And so it says to us that in obscurity, God is at work, underscoring the Messiah's obscure origins, a root out of a dry ground, the world would not receive his pedigree. One of my teachers, Vern Porthress, says something quite wonderful, made a wonderful observation about the kings Asaph and Amos in verses 7 and 9. And uh, it shows something again of the the richness of God's Word. Here's what Vern says about this. He says this is very subtle in divine inspiration and what God was doing through the writing of this. Uh, By spelling... Asa, as Asaph, Matthew refers to King Asa, the son of Abijah. At the same time, on top of this main connection, it creates a literary allusion to or reminiscence of Asaph of the tribe of Levi, the head of the Levitical singers. This allusion subtly suggests that Jesus is not only literally the heir to the kingly line of David— through King Asa, but figuratively and spiritually heir to the Levitical line of priestly activity. By spelling Ammon as Amos, Matthew refers to King Ammon, the son of Manasseh, and at the same time creates a literary allusion to Amos the prophet. It suggests that Jesus is spiritually the heir to the Old Testament prophets. And so, our Savior as prophet, priest, and, stressed in this passage, king, are alluded to even in the spelling of two names in the genealogy. Rich, 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 riches in God's Word. But one huge truth to draw from this history is that this is the historical outworking of God's eternal plan, Christian, to save you and me from our sins. This is what we mean by the providence of God. What can be more encouraging but to turn to Matthew's genealogy and see here that we have the unfolding of God's eternal plan in history, which is providence. That providence which, according to our Westminster Catechism, summarizing all the biblical data, says God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Now, young people, I went to churches when I was your age, when I was a, a boy. I went to churches that didn't stress this. I went to churches that did not believe this not really. They had no emphasis upon the providence of God whatsoever. The term predestination was taboo to them. They would not speak of electing grace. They would not speak of the unfolding of God's eternal decree in time and in space, and thereby really nullifying the Word of God, large portions of the Word. And so they did not have a high biblical view of God and His attributes, and they had no place for the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and men. And every Christmas and throughout the year, we should stress the providence of God that brought the Messiah into this world. Otherwise, we have virtually a pagan view of the Bible, a pagan view of history, and we will also imbibe to a certain degree a pagan rather than a Christian view of my everyday life. How will our children, how will you young people learn to face hardship without beginning to understand that God is in the details? How will you begin to understand that God loves His people even in the hard things that are inexplicable to us if we do not understand the providence, the truth of the providence of God? How can you know that God is for you in the hardships of this life? I mean, when those things happen that are just so deep and so difficult. I ask you, is the birth of Christ by chance? Did He come into this world because it depended upon luck? Did the Savior die on the cross at a whim? Or is He here because God eternally purposed and planned to bring His Son into the world to redeem us from our sins? Was it deep in the eternal plan of the Trinity to do this? And is not God infinite, Yes, he is the infinite God, and so he has a plan that extends to all things. Yes, this truth is the truth that puts steel in the backbone of the people of God as we face hardship and trouble and tribulation and the pressures of this life. The providence of God is here in this passage. It's unmistakable. And it's a truth that has grip in it, that helps us to be God-honoring in the midst of our sorrows and stresses and difficulties. Carnock, the Puritan, made the wonderful statement, if God should in the least moment withhold the influence of his providence, we should melt into nothing. As the reflection of the face in the mirror disappears upon the first instant of our removal from it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. There is all the difference in the world between saying, as an unbeliever does, and unhappily some Christians sometimes fall into because of not being well instructed in this truth, perhaps. There's all the difference in the world between saying, this thing is hard and there's no purpose behind it. And the Christian comment saying from the heart, I don't understand it, but God does, and I know this is a part of his plan. Brethren, we are in God's hands, and this passage helps us to understand that we do not live in a universe of chance, but in a universe in which God rules and reigns over all things. Put it simply, this genealogy is a proclamation of the truth of Romans 8:28. It tells us that those called, according to His purpose, that those who love the Lord, who have been loved by Him from eternity past, for them all things work together for good. That's what we see if we had time to look through all of the details of the history in this passage. Will you take comfort from that? Will you take that into your heart? Will you remember that in the midst of your troubles? So, we have seen the King of Grace described, God's grace in Israel's history, but then we see something else in this passage. Jesus Christ came for sinners. Jesus Christ came for outcasts. And again, we can see this all through, but in Very specific ways the genealogy highlights for women. Now, this is peculiar in a Jewish context that there would be these women in a genealogical survey, but he is telling us in this passage that Jesus Christ came for sinners, that he came for men, that he came for women, he came for children, he came for for people of all colors. He came from people from all walks and backgrounds of life. He came for sinners like you and like me. And this is shown in the four women that are highlighted. For you'll notice in verse 3 that we have Tamar. Now, Tamar was not part of the covenant people of God at this, at, 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 in her origins, She was a Canaanite woman. And God took away her husband and the next oldest brother, Judah, promised to raise up children by his third son, Shelah, and he did not keep that promise, and he failed. And Tamar tricked Judah into sexual relations, and Perez and Zerah were born into the adoptive lineage of Jesus. God's grace for the outcast. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. You can read about it in Genesis 38. And then notice also that it mentions Rahab in verse 5. Rahab the harlot. Canaanite woman who lived in a pagan city called Jericho and protected the Jewish spies and became a part of the people of God, an ancestress of Christ in this adoptive genealogy. So that we read in Hebrews eleven thirty and 31 that Rahab the harlot believed. She became a believer in Jesus Christ by believing the promise as it had thus far been given in that day. And then you will notice Ruth and notice the connection in verse 5, and Salmon the father of Boaz and Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king. And so Ruth, this Moabite woman. And the Moabites were descendants of Lot through incest. And when Melon married Ruth, it was against God's law, but God graciously brought Ruth Into the people of God, she became a believer in Jesus Christ, looking ahead by the promise, and the grandmother of David, and the ancestress of Christ in this adoptive genealogy. And then we have Bathsheba, and notice how this is put there in verse uh, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. No reason for that to be added unless he's making a point of it, and he is. He wants us to remember this unholy union between David and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, the Hittite. And yet she is singled out as an ancestress of Christ. I ask you, is he not the king of grace? To include Canaanite Pagan women, to include a harlot who was a pagan, to bring a woman that was of Moabitus into the covenant community of God. Is it not still true that He is the Savior of sinners? Did not Paul say, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief? Does not he write in Romans 5 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly? It goes on to say in Romans 5, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The thrill of this passage, maybe the Holy Spirit is making plain to you, someone here today, that your nature is corrupt, that your heart needs cleansing, that it's only through the Redeemer that this can happen. Every name in this genealogy, listen, every name in this genealogy, not only these women that are singled out to make the point. But every name in this genealogy except that of Christ is the name of a sinner. Every one of them. Some notoriously so. Some were terribly victimized by others. But here is the sovereignty of God in real history, in real time and space, with real purpose, extended to real sinners who need a real savior and that savior is Jesus the king in verses 7 through 10 if we could look at some of the kings and their lives and but listen god does not save us because we are good people every human inhabitant of heaven is a sinner was once a sinner who is saved by grace. Sin is infinitely evil. Sin is infinitely ugly. Sin is the, the breach of, of what God has revealed in His law about His own character. It is infinitely terrible. And we must be saved from sin unto holiness. That's the grace of God, and that's why He came. And I could not help but think of what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, when he said this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He doesn't say, you are this any longer. No, and such were some of you. Here is true conversion, people of God. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God And so Jesus came and took the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinful flesh, but the likeness of sinful flesh, and he did so to receive sinners into the presence of God. Gentiles, not just Jews, you are Gentiles. You are here today because God intended in His providence to bring the Messiah into the world that Gentiles like you might be added to the kingdom. Gentiles, not only Jews, Tamar, a Canaanite, Rahab, a Canaanite, Ruth, a Moabitess, Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite, possibly a Hittite herself. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's what we're learning here. So, foreigner, outcast, the fallen, the displaced, the despised, the wicked, hear the word of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the capstone of the genealogy, this is the fourth thing, the capstone of the genealogy in verse 16, and Jacob, well it's 16 and 17, but look at 16. 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, why did he say the husband of Mary rather than the father of Christ? Again, he's making a point, isn't he? Christ condescended to have an adoptive father and be a part of a legal genealogy which in The thought of the Jew is a very strong thing indeed, more about that another time, but this part, this is part of the humiliation of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, that he came into this world to save us. And then notice this in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, the Christ to the Christ, fourteen generations. And so, Matthew by divine inspiration is choosing certain ancestors to make certain points. And twice seven is fourteen. And seven is the number of perfection. And the numerical value of the name David, David the King, Hebrew letters have numerical values. The numerical value of David is 14. He's saying to us, the Messiah has come. David's greater son has come. He's saying to us in the words of Leon Morris, it is clear that God is working out his will in cycles of perfect symmetry. There were no mistakes here. This was God's divine plan. And it says to us that all of the lines of this genealogy are drawn to Christ. That all of the history is drawn to Christ. And if all of the lines of the genealogy are drawn to Christ, and I am redeemed by this Redeemer, and you are redeemed by this Redeemer, then for you and me it also means that all of the lines of my life, your life, must be drawn to Christ for salvation, for justification, for holiness. All are drawn to Christ. As they are in providence, so they should be in our lives. Matthew's purpose is to help us to see that God has a plan to save the nations through the coming King. The Messiah has come who brings the blessing of the covenant of grace made with Abraham and his seed to the Gentiles. And it is a genealogy through which God stretches out His hand, even calling someone, someone's calling us all ultimately to faith in Christ. The genealogy points sinners to the only Savior of sinners who is Jesus. God who worked providentially in history to bring the Messiah is at work now to bring sinners to Himself. And I pray that even in this morning's service, the Holy Spirit would draw some lost one to Jesus Christ. So let me close this way. Surely one of the overwhelming themes of the genealogy of Jesus, as we have seen, is the providence of God. God's eternal plan to glorify His Son and to save His elect is worked out in God's sovereign control of history. And so Christmas, always when we look at the Christmas texts and Christmas themes, Christmas confronts us with providence, His comprehensive plan. And so in the midst of the darkness of the sin of this world, people of God take comfort from the fact that God is ruler yet. He does reign over China and Iran and Great Britain and the United States. He does reign over that problem in my life. He does reign over health and sickness. He does reign over the time of my life and the time of my death. And this gives me the opportunity to bring to you once again one of my favorite quotes from Jonathan Jonathan Edwards about the providence of God. Please receive it as comfort, biblical comfort. Edwards liken the providence of God to a long, large river. And he says, God's providence may not unfitly be compared to a large and long river having innumerable branches beginning in different regions and at different, a great distance one from another and all conspiring to one common issue. After their very diverse and apparent contrary courses, they all collect together together the nearer they come to their common end and at length discharge themselves at one mouth into the same ocean. The different streams of this river are apt to appear like mere confusion to us because of our limited sight whereby we cannot see the whole at once. A man who sees but one or two streams at a time cannot tell what their course tends to. Their course seems very crooked, And different streams seem to run for a while different and contrary ways. And if we view things at a distance, there seem to be innumerable obstacles and impediments in the way as rocks and mountains and the like to hinder their ever uniting and coming to the ocean. But yet if we trace them, they all unite at last. They all come to the same issue, disgorging themselves into the same ocean, not one of all the streams fails. Not one of all the streams through history failed in bringing the Messiah into this world. Not one of all the streams will fail to bring sinners to himself. Not one of the streams fails in the hardest things that you're facing in your life. If we could but see it as God sees it, which we cannot, we would see how it all fits together. But we can trust the one who planned it, purposed it, and who does see it all. And that is the way in which to live the Christian life. Amen and amen.